This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century. Join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. You're listening to the Gravity Podcast. I am Matt Tebby, one of your co-hosts here faithfully every week, filling up your auditory nerves with sound waves. Joined by Christy, who also does that. Hello, Christy. Yes. Hey, hey. And Ben Sternke. Hello, Ben. Hey. Yep. Also, audio waves, etc. Yeah, good job. Everybody's doing a good job. Uh, yep. Question, did you guys have a good holiday weekend? I love holidays. Every Holidays. one of them. I do too. Can <laughs> yes. I tell you? Can I tell you what happened to me? Yeah. Um, I'm. Uh, we're actually we're actually recording this before Thanksgiving, yeah. but I'm <laughs> listener. A little peek behind the curtain. We'll see how the sausage <laughs> is made. We'll see if you want to eat a hamburger once you see what goes oh, through the man. goes through the it's machine. Ugly. Ugly. Um, I'm going to smoke a turkey and a brisket, and I'm having my family over, and nice. my sister, who's 42 has four kids, lives on a farm in Southern Indiana, messages me and she's like, hey, you better have plenty of turkey because I'm going to eat that entire turkey mm. because I'm four and a half months pregnant. <gasps> oh, hey, wow! It's a total surprise. Congratulations! Uh, you didn't meet an uncle again! I, uh, well, yes, but she was like, I can't believe this is happening. I, <laughs> we are, you know, I did not it's a little embarrassing to be pregnant in your forties on accident. Um, but anyway, I'm excited for her. I'm excited That's for their so family. Fun. That is but she cool. did say she's going to eat all the smoked turkey. So you oh. better have plenty for well, we can That maybe... is kind of my dream come true. I'm not going to lie. Like, I mean, my husband's Christy, worst nightmare. He's so funny. <laughs> it's like his worst nightmare, but it would be my dream come true. Or not... like just, I don't know, having twins, you know, just like, oh my gosh. It's not um, just getting pregnant. Yeah. But getting pregnant, getting pregnant with getting, triplets. Getting pregnant in your 40s <laughs> with triplets. With triplets. <laughs> Listen, my sister yes. has triplets. No, I, I would like twins. Triplet three <laughs> seems too okay, much. All right. no, <laughs> that's too much. That's too far. Yeah. Says Christy with six kids. So, so fun. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations to Matt's sister. Yeah. yeah it's fun. And Advent's mm-hmm. coming. It is. Yeah. Do you guys Advent. have like traditions for Advent? We end Advent. With a celebration we call Christmas. It's a te- it's a <laughs> Thank you. Is wow. One of I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's. I feel like I talked about it a lot. And now it's catching yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we actually celebrate Christmas for twelve days. It's called yes, the twelve days do. of Christmas. You ever heard of that? So yes. Yeah, that's a personal family tradition that we're just starting to talk about. <laughs> get around. <laughs> All right. Well, now, here's the deal. My house you, is almost fully decorated for Advent. And. 
yes, yeah. but like I know, you know, liturgical my liturgical friends really think I shouldn't decorate until Christmas Eve. Oh, which yeah. actually my grandma's dad, so my great grandfather, would not put up his Christmas tree until Christmas Eve. Oh my god. And he would put it up, put the lights on, and when my grandma would get up in the morning, like there would be a get one gift underneath mm-hmm. the tree and the tree would be lit up and it would be like mm. this super fun thing. And I'm like, oh, I love that, except for that I really want my house totally decorated the whole month of December yeah. and January for that matter. So Yeah. Yeah. I I there are some um there's liturgical police out there that yep. um that say that we should, you know, honor Advent for what it is. And I think you can, even if you put Christmas lights up around your house in December. I think you can. Okay, one of the things you. one of the things that we like to do is keep our tree up at least until Epiphany. Yeah. Like, I do that too. You don't 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 take it down. Like celebrate those 12 days of Christmas. Yep. Um, and you know, maybe even further. Some people go all the way to like February, keep their tree up. I think that's fun. Yep. I actually, uh, Ann Voskamp has a, like, I don't even know. It's like a circular thing that counts down to Christmas. So all of Advent, and then you add another part of it, and then it counts all the way to Easter. It's like oh. the cradle to the cross. Oh. It's super cool and kind of keeps me on track liturgically. So. Yeah. Cradle to the cross is pretty catchy too. Somebody, somebody with some uh, alliteration chops came up with that. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> But do you know what that means, though, guys? It what? does mean I need to send you your Christmas package for you to open mm-hmm. on yes. the podcast, like last year. Yes, yeah, we're gonna, Christy. Do that. We're gonna mm-hmm. send you one too. Yeah, we're gonna. We realize, oh boy, that it's ridiculous <laughs> that you send us presents and we're like, thank you. That's great. Ah, <laughs> oh, bless so your heart. We need, yeah, we need to have, uh, we need to have a, you know. Uh, so we're, anyway, we're going to send you some stuff. It didn't sound like you were entirely excited about that, Christy. Uh, <laughs> well, what? listen, I sent deal? you like flossers last year and That's like true. a whoopee cushion or something. I don't know. Was, I just feel gifts. like, mm-hmm. yeah. So I get a little nervous, but I will get it in the mail so we can do it on this podcast. It'll be really fun. Yeah, we will okay. we'll open gifts together. And you will have a present as well, Christy. Okay. Sounds good. I, but I the present by, today Val. is who nice. are you from? Come nice on, segue. I'm segueing for nice you. Segue. Yeah, thank you, Zach Hunt. We're talking to Zach Hunt here in a moment. You'll hear him here in a moment. Yes. And uh, it was a great conversation. You know what? I um, I brought up my smoking turkey and smoking brisket on Thanksgiving because uh, Zach actually smokes a lot of meat. Yes. We talk about it a little bit, and his setup is: I have, I did succumb to the temptation of envy mm. when he talked about his barbecue rig that's right that's right um, we we actually spend the first listener if you if you are not interested in barbecue like just forward through the first six seven well, minutes of this podcast because <laughs> we long? started with that and we just kept 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 going which i well, i found it interesting fascinating but um but yeah we do talk about barbecue as well as the inspiration of scripture on this podcast uh-huh part of our series we should get into it All yep right. yep here we go Zach Hunt joins us today on the Gravity Podcast. He's got an undergraduate degree with a double major in religion and history and a graduate degree in theology. 
as well as additional graduate degree in Christian history from Yale Divinity School. His writing has appeared in Rolling Stone, the Boston Globe, Huff Post, and he wrote a book narrating his faith deconstruction vis-a-vis the book Revelation titled Unraptured. He's interested in the intersection of faith and politics and smoking barbecue. He joins us today to discuss his latest book in our series in the Bible here, God Breathed, what it really means for the Bible to be inspired. Zach, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate being on. Well, it is good to have you. Um, I got to know you through social media, followed some of your postings for a while, and I think I want to get the most important question out of the way first. Um, what? Tell me about your barbecue setup. What do you got? What do you smoke on? Um, so I have a couple of different things. Um, the thing I probably use the most is just my Weber. Um you know, I, I've got an insert for it that I use if I smoke or I do what's called the snake method. Um, yeah. If I'm going to do like a, a big smoke, like, you know, um, especially something like a brisket that requires, you know, pretty steady temperature. I have this thing called a KBQ that I just love. It looks like a filing box, uh, yeah. like an old school metal box with a firebox on top. And it's really just ingenious design. It's built by this guy um, out of his garage in Dallas, Texas. And the way it works, the fire... Um, in front of the firebox is a fan system. And so the fan draws the heat down through the coals. And so it burns off all the impurities um, that are in the smoke. So you get that nice, clean, pure blue smoke that everybody wants to have. Um, and then the other fan that's in there circulates it like a convection fan. So you get a nice steady temperature as well. Um, so it's as close as you can get to set it and forget it while actually burning like real wood. So you get that nice, sweet um, combustion that you get with wood that you don't get with like pellets or charcoal. So that's that's my pride and joy. I, I love that thing. Well, I know we can lose listeners pursuing this but that, <laughs> nerds that kbq sounds like uh that's my love language right there that sounds that sounds incredible um i smoked a brisket last weekend for a oh. like a church harvest party and i have a pk360 which is yeah. a little smaller it's kind of it's kind of like the weber um grill but um it's a little smaller and makes it tricky so i'm i'll have to look up the kbq it's um, great i love it yeah i have to look that up uh maybe ben that's a birthday present idea for me for me oh for me Oh, I thought you were going to get me some. <laughs> I thought you wanted me to join you in the. I'll tell you what. Right. You buy me a KBQ. Right. I'll we're pass not on, on the my same page. We I'll pass on, on my 360 page. to you. Yeah. Um, hey Zach, getting into your book here. Um, this book is about inspiration and what it means to say the scriptures inspired. What mm-hmm. about your story or your faith made this book important for you to write? Yeah, I think for me, it's trying to give folks. Um, you know, I, I I say this a lot, but you know the permission and, and the freedom that I don't think that I always had um, to ask questions about the Bible. You know, to doubt, to disagree, to push back. Um, you know, because for me, you know, growing up, and I think anyone that grew up in evangelicalism, whether it was in the fundamental variety or or not, you know, it's the Word of God, and that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, but unfortunately, for a lot of us, you know, it becomes like a fourth member of the Trinity. You know, it is God incarnated in, you know, paper and ink and is, you know, beyond questioning um, because to question the Bible is to, you know, question God. Um, but really um, how that plays out is is that in questioning someone's interpretation of the Bible, you know, you're questioning God. And so then pastors and theologians and just you know, people um, become the voice of God. And so that becomes a very scary, often abusive situation. Um, and, you know, it it's hard to break out of that without 
you know, someone speaking into that, I think that especially someone, you know, that's come from that um, and to say, you know, there's other ways um, that, that you can look at the Bible and these aren't new, crazy, you know, liberal um, ways. These are ways that people have been reading the Bible for 2000 years. And so, yeah, I, I, my hope is that people can begin to build a new relationship you know, with scripture, um, you know, if that's the path they take and if not just find freedom that maybe they haven't felt before. Yeah. yeah. You, you mentioned, and you talk about this right in the beginning of your book, sort of this temptation to bibliolatry, hmm. you know, uh, you, you mentioned just making it the fourth member of the Trinity. And I think a lot of our listeners, I think Ben and I can relate to this Zach, where we feel like, okay, we've got this tradition that, um, maybe makes an idol of the Bible, but the only other possibility we have is sort of just to, to reject, quote, reject truth. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, or, or like another problem is uh, rejecting truth. I know that's really bad. And if I have to choose between that or making an idol of scripture, well, how bad can that really be? Right? I'm, I, aren't I just taking it seriously? So can right. you maybe unpack for us how making an idol of scripture has done us dirty? Like what what's the cost for that in our faith? And then what's wrong with thinking in terms of just this binary, either I reject scripture or I make an idol of it. Right. Um, let's start there and work backwards. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, I think, you know, one of the fundamental problems that we have with the Bible is approaching it um, as sort of one thing, right? Like as a book, um, you know, that, that we, in the same way that we would, you know, Charles Dickens or C.S. Lewis or a science book or a history book. Um, and that's just not what the Bible is. You know, it's a collection of text. Um, you know, it's akin to a library, but I think it's something more like an anthology because it's, you know, intentionally put together. Um, you know, it's, there is structure to it, intentionality to it. It's trying to tell a unified story, but there's a wide variety of voices who are saying things um, in very different ways because it was written over centuries by generations of people in very often, you know, very different contexts, even if there's similarities in those contexts, you know? And so, you know, what I'm trying to do in the first half of the book is, is trying to lay down that basic foundation of, you know, we need to step back and, and really look at what this is, you know, um, it is the people of God trying to tell the story, the people of God. And it's, you know, as long as there have been the people of God, we have gotten the story wrong sometimes because we're imperfect people. We are God breathed, you know, um, you know, we, we look at that word and think God breathed, it means inspired and it does, but that doesn't mean perfection. You know, there's only one other thing in scripture that is God breathed and it's us because God takes dirt in Genesis um, chapter three and breathes into it um, life. He inspirits it with the spirit of, of, of God. Um, and so being God breathed, being inspired doesn't mean perfection. You know, it means, tr- you know, trying to tell this story in the best way possible. And sometimes mm-hmm. we get it wrong because we continue to get it wrong today. And that's okay because preaching good news doesn't require perfection. You know, it requires a willing heart, you know? And so, you know, the problem is when, when we treat the Bible as this sort of like autonomous thing that can speak on its own, um, what we end up doing is sort of removing ourselves from the equation. And so we say things like, well, I'm just saying, or the Bible is clear, or this is just Jesus, you know, as if we're not making, you know, a dis- interpretive decision to mm-hmm. highlight a specific verse or specific passage. Um, you know, the reality, inescapable reality is that, you know, all scripture um, 
reading is, is an act of interpretation. I mean, translating scripture is an act of interpretation. Compiling scripture is an act of interpretation. I mean, the Bible itself is an act of interpreting the story of the people of God because we chose to include certain stories and not, you know. And so when we try to remove ourselves or feign objectivity as if, you know, um, we're just preaching the Bible, what we're doing is making ourselves the mouth of God. You know, we're making our opinions God God's opinions. And when we do that, when we are disingenuous with, with Scripture and disingenuous with the fact that we play an essential role in deciding what it says, you know, or what it emphasizes or what, you know, whichever direction you want to go with it, um, we put ourselves in the place of God. And so the biblical, the problem of biblical idolatry isn't, you know, this getting down, you know, and worshiping a physical book, it's using the Bible to put ourselves in the place of God. And so what we end up doing is, you know, committing the very sin that Adam and Eve, um, did in the garden when they snatched at divinity, you know, they, they tried to put themselves in the place of God. And, and that's what Jesus, you know, comes to try to undo according to Paul in Philippians two, when he invokes that same sort of imagery. And so, you know, it's the whole book is really just trying to get down to these baseline ideas of why does this book exist? What is it, you know, what, what function does it serve and how, how do I play a role in this storytelling? Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm just thinking about the irony, Zach, of the, how it sounds humble for us to say, like, I'm not part of this. The Bible is just speaking. It sounds humble right. to actually, to, to say, oh, I'm just receiving what the Bible says. But in actuality, it, it is idolatry for us to not reckon with the fact that we have to be involved because of what reading is and what people are. Like, we have to be involved in interpreting the Bible and to refuse to see that is actually an act of pride cloaked in the 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 guise of humility, right? In one and, sense, and that, right? Absolutely, and that's where it gets so dangerous because you know well-intentioned people end up becoming incredibly toxic, toxic and abusive people because they think that they're doing the will of God. Exactly, you know? yeah. and and that's that's the problem. Is you know we if we're going to read the Bible, if the Bible is going to have a relevant, practical, informative, inspiring place in our lives, we have to begin by acknowledging our role in reading, interpreting, and you know deciding what it means. And now a word from a sponsor. All right, let's get back into our conversation. Well, maybe that's a good uh, segue into um, another part of your book that um, I, I did a, a course in hermeneutics. Um, and one of the things that kind of blew my mind when I first learned it was, and, and it was, you know, when you think about it, um, of course, this is the way it is, but just the way that we got the Bible. Um, is something that I don't think a lot of, especially Christians who maybe have a little bit more of a simplistic view of what, what the Bible is and, you know, how God's word works. Um, they don't really think about how, how it is that we got the Bible and sort of the assumption I think behind that is that it did just sort of drop out of the sky or appear, you know, and with golden letters or something. Um, but you know, without getting into every detail, cause there's obviously a lot, um, I wonder if you could share with us, like, what's the significance for the Bible, for how we got the Bible? Um, and what does that illuminate? What does that show us about um, how we think about inspiration? I think the story of the Bible says that God is a God who's willing to take risk, you know, mm -hmm. that God doesn't feel, seem to feel the need to drop a book from heaven, right? That yeah. God... 
has chosen to let us participate in real dynamic and essential ways in telling the story of, of the people of God, telling the story of God, telling good news, Mm -hmm. you know, and in some respects that's scary. It's risky. I think it's worth sometimes even asking why God would do that because, you know, (laughs) as the book of judges, you know, says in those days where, you know, there was no King in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And, you know, we've been doing that ever since, you know, putting things in the mouth of God and doing things in the name of God that are terrible. You know, but on the other side of that, too, is, you know, this inspiring, you know, thing to me that, like, if we really are filled with the breath of God, the Ruach, you know, the, yeah. in the Hebrew, that that gave us life and that gives Scripture life, then we are a fundamental part of breathing life into the world, you know, of, of giving life to Scripture and turning it into a book of life instead of a weapon of death. You know, and so it goes back again to that fundamental accountability of self-accountability that we play a role in this, that the Bible can do great good and it can do great harm. Um, and it's up to us to decide, you know, how that's going to play out, um, whether that's in, you know, the storytelling as the, you know, the people writing it or us interpreting it and proclaiming it, you know, we play a fundamental role. And I think that there's some really exciting possibilities and um, amazing things there that God genuinely wants us to participate in this act of renewing all things. Yeah, Zach, that's good. I, uh, not only the history of how we got what we call the Bible, you know, this diverse set of 66 plus or minus books, but also you, um, you go into the history of other things and how they've shaped maybe some of the ways we frame or conceptualize inspiration. So just to give a taste, one, for one instance, you, you talk about how maybe the history of the challenges of science maybe, or, and especially the challenge of evolution, how that shapes the way Christians decided to conceive of and talk about inspiration. What, what were some of the costs to f- collapsing our theological frameworks of inspiration into a world of science? What, what did that cost us as Christians? And maybe what do we do to, to break out of that way of thinking or framing it? That's an excellent question. Um, I think that it further reduced or reduces, you know, still ongoing, um, Christianity into a religion of ideas. You know, um, you know, I think that that's the, one of the legacies of the Reformation, you know, when we start talking about salvation by faith alone, you know, whether Luther originally attended it this way, the way it's been reduced, you know, in the last 500 years is that I'm saved because I believe in the right ideas. You know, and so the battles with science become another source of ideas that I need to affirm, you know, the right ones versus the wrong ones so that I don't go to hell. And so I think the the problem with that battle, you know, one, it's it's misplaced. You know, scripture, you know, the the people who wrote it, you know, or writing the book of Genesis, you know, however many, you know, centuries ago, um, one have a very different worldview, you know, than we do and and are not thinking of of creation in the sort of scientific terms that we are. So we're trying to force, you know, a a round peg into a square hole, you know, and so we're trying to make the Bible do something that it's not really trying to do. Um, But the bigger problem, you know, is again, we're taking this, what is supposed to be a life giving faith, right? I mean, the idea at the heart of Christianity is 
this triune God, this fundamental loving relationship that pours love out into creation to create life and then incarnates you know, in a human being to sort of further this life. And then there's this resurrection to continue this life. And so like the whole story of the people of God is about bringing forth life. I mean, that's what inspiring is about, is about the spirit of God breathing life into the world, into us, into scripture. And so when we reduce Christianity into just a religion of ideas, it's it's just dead. It's dry bones, you know, in a valley of death that, that don't bring about life. I mean, there's no good news there, you know, and I think that's really the source of a lot of our, you know, problems today. I mean, obviously the culture wars and things like that, but you know, the, I don't think there's a lot of people outside the church hearing any good news. They're just hearing a lot of rhetoric and dogma and legalism because for us, Christianity is all about being right. You know, it's not about bringing forth life and inspiring life. It's just about being right. And so I think the science debate is just sort of symptomatic of a deeper problem, you know, a misunderstanding that we have about the faith that Christianity is about right ideas rather than, you know, right relationship. Yeah. That's a really big paradigm shift. I think for so many of us, Zach, um, cause I, I think when you say it that, you know, hey, w- what do you think being a Christian is all about? I don't think anybody w- would like overtly say it means, it means having the right ideas, you know, oh, yeah. about God. Um, but there's so many ways in which that gets revealed as the really, the truly the ground of right. our, you know, like what we think of the ground of our being is like, just like, Oh, that's really important that Christians are correct. You know, maybe even, maybe that's a better word to, to sort of illustrate what we're talking about here is like, I hold the correct idea about sexuality. I hold the correct idea about how the earth was created. I hold the correct idea and just how, how far away that is from the faith that the Bible actually reveals to us, right? Is, is like how far away from that is like, no, it's about life. It's about us, a kind of life that God empowers and enables and shares actually with us. Right. Um, I don't know. I'm just struck by that as you're sharing. Um, and I, I think this, it, it has yielded for a lot of our listeners. Again, a, a lot of our listeners are, they don't necessarily hold these views anymore, but they, they're sort of struggling with the, after effect of these views and, and not really knowing how to move forward into something different without just rejecting the Bible. So I think one example of, you know, one result of Christianity as an idea, like an, a religion of ideas, is that we did come up with this idea that the Bible itself was perfect. You know, inerrant was the word that we used. It was like the Bible is perfectly correct in all the information it gives us about everything. Um, and then of course, you know, as we begin to see contradictions, you know, well, not all the gospel writers say the exact same thing, or Jesus did this, at what point of his ministry. And, you know, we get all tangled up in knots, you know, about some of these things. Um, and it puts us into a faith crisis because again, our, our whole faith is rooted in, this is a correct book that doesn't have any errors. And then we notice errors. Um, and I think a lot of, you know, people just think the only option is to, is to maybe the, maybe the, my faith is not real faith and this isn't real and, you know, the Bible isn't anything. Um, but anyway, in your book, you talk a lot about how um, errors and contradictions can actually fit with our doctrine of inspiration. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Like, how do you hold errors in the Bible, like real contradictions? How does that actually fit with inspiration rather than challenge inspiration? Right. Um, I, I, two ways. I, I think, you know, one 
to kind of circle back to what we were talking about before is what is this thing, you know, that we're working with this, this Bible, right. Um, you know, because if we begin with the premise that it has to be perfect, then the errors become problematic. Right. But if we don't begin with that problem, that premise, and there's no reason that we have to, because there's nothing, I mean, if we're going to do circular reasoning, which is what inerrancy does, um, there's nothing in scripture that says that it needs to be perfect. Right. This is a, a later, um, dogma that we have forced onto scripture in response to science or in, to, in response to evolution and, and this need to, like you said, to be correct. And so um, what I try to do in the book is to get past that and to peel back the history and say, well, it doesn't need to be perfect in the first place. This is not something that the church has, you know, historically, you know, affirmed in the way that we mean it, you know, today. Um, but the way that we can sort of embrace that is embrace something that the church has been saying for, you know, almost 2000 years. Cause you know, like I said before, these ideas aren't, aren't new and they're certainly not mine. I'm stealing from a guy named origin, you know, who's one of the <laughs> right. um, earliest church fathers and who in the early church had, you know, more influence than anyone other than Augustine, um, you know, who was essentially, you know, one of his not direct disciples, but, you know, um, later disciples. And he says, he says two things, um, you know, one, he says that we should look in scripture um, to find a meaning, you know, worthy of the God that we, you know, think that it, it reveals. And that's me paraphrasing and butchering his eloquence. Um, mm-hmm. But then he says, you know, that there are two meanings or two, two, um, well, I should know this because I literally just wrote the book about what's the word he uses, two senses of scripture. Um, there's the literal, which are the words on the page. Um, and then there's the spiritual, which is the deeper truth that God is trying to teach us. And so he, what he says is that the Holy Spirit in this process of inspiration has allowed certain what he calls stumbling blocks, um, things that couldn't possibly be true, whether that's historical um, right. or ethical, like slaves obey your masters for it right in the Lord. Um, to draw us deeper into the into the word, to draw us deeper into the spiritual sense, into the message that God is trying to teach us. And so, what I hear Origen saying is that it's totally okay um, that these things happen because it speaks to the fact that again, these are the people of God telling us these are people like you and me. And to me, there's great hope in that because it says that God um, trusts us to tell the story even when he gets it wrong and tells me that like people like Paul or the disciples aren't these great superheroes. They're people like you and me. Um, and if people like you and me can be trusted with writing scripture, then people like you and me can be trusted with proclaiming good news even when we get it wrong. Right. But then it also helps me deal with passages that are just inherently awful, like slaves obey your masters for his right in the Lord. Like, what do you do with that? Mm-hmm. Um, well, if we stay in the literal sense, then we're stuck with this really awful command that we can use to justify slavery. But if we embrace, you know, what Origen is saying 1700 years ago, before there was even a thing called the Bible, and say that, well, you know, this is a stumbling block because this can't be, you know, correct, um, because there's nothing loving, you know, about um enslaving people. And Jesus was very clear that all interpretation of scripture and all interpretation of the law and prophets hangs on the call to love. And it's not loving to do your, to enslave your neighbor. So what do you do? Well, we can take that and say, maybe this is a reminder that the people of God get it wrong sometimes and that we need to be more humble and we need to be, be willing to admit that, you know, we screw up sometimes, even when we're really, really sure. And even when we think this is the voice of God in our heads, we can still get it wrong. And so for me, I think that there's a lot of hope and opportunity, exciting opportunity to embrace those sorts of passages 
um, in a radically different way. So instead of just saying, oh, well, no, we have to do these bad things because the Bible says them, you know, um, we can get down to a deeper, deeper um, spiritual sense of Scripture and say, you know, actually, there's a lesson to be learned here that just because the Bible says something doesn't actually make it correct or good. And that that's okay because the people of God screw up and we screw up. And if we can learn to admit that, then maybe we can learn to be better, more life-giving people and more faithful to the way of Jesus, um, who said, you have heard it said, but I say all the time. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, for me, I, I think there's there's a lot of exciting opportunities um, that that we can that we can find if we can learn to approach Scripture um in a more intellectually honest um, and humble way than a lot of us were raised. Yeah, Zach, you alluded early on in our interview about your book as a reclaiming of a Christian tradition and, and making it contemporary. And so now you mention Origen as somebody who embodies that tradition. Maybe you're emulating some of his logic, right, and some of his uh, theologizing and exegesis. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't want our listener to miss this, because usually whenever somebody is battling you know, the battle over the Bible. I think that happened before most of us were uh, old enough to know what was going on. But <laughs> we grew up definitely in the uh, aftermath of, of the Bible being this battleground. Um, that the, the high ground in the battle over the Bible was the Bible is inerrant and perfect. And if right. you say it's not, you're departing from tradition. But I don't want the listener to, to hear that actually claiming that the Bible is inerrant in the way that most people in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and today mean it, is a departure from tradition. That's right. the departure from tradition. And what Absolutely. you're what you're doing, Zach, for us is reclaiming uh, a more ancient tradition and a more uh, what you're, you're saying is more faithful tradition that actually receives the Bible as it is, rather than rather than determining what the Bible must be and reading it like that. Exactly, exactly. So the doctrine of inerrancy is not Christian orthodoxy. Um, Christian orthodoxy is a very specific thing. Um, it requires a, something resembling a unified church, which, despite kind of what we've learned, hasn't ever really existed. Um, you know, from the very beginning, there were Christianities. You know, there wasn't just one Christianity. Um, you know, there's people in uh, Damascus, and and there's people in Alexandria, and there's people in Jerusalem. I mean, you see this all throughout Scripture. You know, Peter and Paul going at it constantly, trying to understand. Um, you know, and then James is doing his thing. You know, as well. And so, the closest thing that we have to a unified church, you know, is it are our councils and our creeds and our confessions. And no one in the history of church of the church before the Presbyterian Church does this in Atlantic City in the early 20th century confesses that the Bible is perfect in every way as Christian orthodoxy. Um, it's just, it's not. It's a modern response to the rise of evolution um, and later, you know, or earlier to the Enlightenment. It's exactly what you said. It's it's forcing the Bible to conform to our predetermined dogmatic needs. Yeah. We need the Bible to be this absolutely perfect um unassailable source of correctness so that we can stand up against science and technology and and culture and the alignment and say, no, we're right and we're wrong and you're wrong. Mm -hmm. And so inerrancy is about what we need the Bible to do for us. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's never been how the church has approached scripture. You know, I mean, we've, we've tried to understand and let scripture be a part of the equation. Um, You know, the, it's, you know, from the Wesleyan tradition, you know, we talk about um, the quadrilateral, you know, and scripture, tradition, you know, reason and experience, and it all comes together, you know, to shape and inform our theology. And so the truth is, and this is, you know, what I tried to do, like I said, in the first half of the book is, is inerrancy is new. 
I mean, it's it's newer than the rapture, you know. Um, you know, the the rapture is invented, um, you know, in the late nineteenth uh, century um, by John Darby, who probably stole it from a teenage girl. But you know, it's it's invented, you know, in the nineteenth century, and then inerrancy comes. And so, you know, you have a lot of folks who are um, trying to re. Uh, put the puzzle back together, but they're really trying to create the puzzle and then, you know, create the pieces by going back and proof texting things from the Westminster confession or um, from some of the church fathers. Well, they'll, where they'll use language um, that sounds like, um, or, you know, perfect or perfection and ignore the fact that, you know, one language changes over 400 years, um, especially, you know, if we're going to reference the Westminster confession, um, but two, like 2,000 years, if we're going to try to take the Greek and say, um, no, the, they're saying the word is, or that the Bible is perfect in, in, in every way. Well, again, they're not really talking about the exact same thing. Um, yeah. You know, if, but then again, like they're also explicitly saying um, things that, like Origen said, that actually, no, the Bible does have contradictions and imperfections. And that's okay because that's not what the Bible needs to do. You know, and even. Uh, in the Reformation, when a lot of this stuff, you know, kind of gets started with sola scriptura, which is, you know, another nonsense doctrine, um, because as soon as Martin Luther said, you know, we only need scripture alone to interpret everything, all the reformers went 12 different ways because they couldn't decide who sola scriptura was perfect. But even yeah. Martin Luther yeah. disagreed with the Bible. He wanted to kick the entire epistle of James um, out of the Bible because he called it an epistle of straw because it contradicted his um, doctrine of sola fide. And so the idea that scripture is this sort of um, unassailable, perfect, text is a response to a particular moment in time about a hundred years ago. Right. It is absolutely in no way, shape or form um, Christian orthodoxy, because again, mm-hmm. Christian orthodoxy is a very specific thing in anything after the great schism um, of, you know, between you know the East and West church can't in any way be talked about as universal orthodoxy. And so, you know, that's a thousand years ago and inerrancy is a hundred years ago. So, it, you know, to depart from inerrancy is to not depart from orthodoxy. It's to get back to actual Christian orthodoxy. We'll be right back. The Gravity Podcast is sponsored by the Gravity Formation Course, a 12-month cohort-based training in practical spiritual formation, where you'll learn to notice how God is already at work in your life, so you can participate more fully in the life God shares with us. It's a discipleship process that goes beyond just gaining more knowledge and trying some new practices. In the Gravity Formation Course, we go below the surface of our lives so we can notice and name our deepest desires in God's presence and discern how God is at work in those desires to lead us toward holistic flourishing. More transformation, more life, more joy, more love. We've trained hundreds of people from all over the world in this formation framework, and it has helped many to have a sense of God at work in their lives and learn to be more at home in God's love. If you'd like to learn more, Go to gravitycommons.com slash formation. Let's get back to the show. I've said this on uh, one of our other podcasts in this series, um, but I think the other, the other thing that sort of uh, blew my mind <laughs> when studying how we got the Bible and like the theological interpretation of scripture was that the, even the way, like what, there's actually a lot of precedent for what Luther was trying to do with the, with the book of James, right? Like when they were putting together, like what books, what letters from Paul 
and what, you know, what uh, stories of Jesus are going to be considered scripture for the church. Like that question was debated for hundreds of years. And the way that they debated it was comparing the, the letters, comparing the written documents to the gospel. They were comparing it to a rule of faith that they had received, which was not a written document. It was a, it was a verbal spoken thing They, they, you know, they proclaimed it and people in church and all that kind of thing. And they compared that, you know, what they had, and this is, you know, the the apostles creed is an example of one, maybe one of the earliest sort of formulations of what is this good news that has, that has come to us in God, you know, in Christ. And they, they basically used that to say that was their measuring stick to say, does this book hold up, you know, right. to, to the gospel? Does it proclaim the gospel? Right. Um, and so in some ways, Martin Luther was, was doing that, but, but he had not the gospel. He had his ideas about like right. sola fide and like only by faith alone. And right. so he didn't like what he saw in the book of James because right. it seemed to challenge some of his ideas about faith alone. So, hmm. And imagine, you know, if somebody did that today, you know, I mean, <laughs> I know. like, I mean, he's considered, right, you know, rightfully so, this major pillar in church history, right. Um, right. you know, and he's wanting to kick part of the Bible. I mean, if somebody did that today, yeah, right? I mean, right. It's not considered yeah, a con- conservative thing to do at all. No, yeah. no. Kind of a bit of a radical thing to do. So, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I think if Dabney can steal a uh, rapture from a little girl, then uh, Martin Luther can get over his reticence about the book of James, really. You know, I, t- translating origin is notoriously tricky, Zach, uh, because he's he's sort of a, he's a galaxy brain. Like, he's super smart. Yeah. Like, he would, I've heard stories like he would translate with, uh, like, Latin with his left hand and Greek with his right hand of the same yes. text from same. Hebrew, and he same. would write them at the same time, like, just to, just and so sometimes his writing can be a bit inaccessible or obtuse. So I really appreciated the last part of your book where you take sort of Origen's instincts and you translate it for us today, and you build a, an an ethic of interpretation and exegesis around um, love. And so I wonder if you could just share a bit how this command this this command to love God and love neighbor. How you how that informs the way that you receive the inspired text, and what difference has that commitment to that ethic made for you? Hmm. You know, I think you know one of the things you hear, you know, from fundamentalists, you know, well, if it's not all true, then it all falls apart. Right. You know, well, if your faith is a house of cards to begin with, like why why is that your faith? You know, like if your faith is that sort of delicate that, you know, taking away one card makes it all collapse. Maybe the problem was, you know, how you structured your faith in in the beginning. And that house of cards is exactly what happens when you force the Bible, you know, to conform to things that it's not meant to do, like inerrancy or like science, um, you know, as we were saying before. And so what I'm trying to do at the end is, is kind of anticipate that. We're like, well, who are you to choose, you know, which is true and which is not, or what you should follow and what you shouldn't. And what I'm saying is I'm not. Um, but Jesus gives us a pretty, you know, clear indication. And so what I'm trying to do is is kind of draw from a couple of these fundamental or foundational sources to create kind of a new fundamentalism. Um, and so what I yeah. do with Origin is I think Origin opens the door, you know, and, and he says, 
actually it's okay to embrace these things because God embraced these imperfections, right? Because, you know, we're trying to find this meaning in scripture that's worthy of the God that we say, you know, it's telling us about. And if we're going to do that, we have to be honest, you know, about this. And then I find, you know, my other sort of bookend in in Augustine, who's just ripping off of Jesus, right? Um, and Augustine says, you know, it doesn't matter how great your interpretation is, doesn't matter how great your exegesis, your, your Greek or whatever, if your interpretation of scripture doesn't lead you to love God and neighbor, then you're wrong, right? And so what I do is say, well, if I come again to use that passage about um, slaves obey your masters, well, you know, this can't be right um, because it doesn't lead me to love God and neighbor. And so I can't just take that passage and run with it and say, oh, sorry, people, you have to be enslaved because the Bible says so, because that doesn't lead me to love, you know, God and neighbor. And then Origen says, it's okay to admit that that's wrong, right? Because it's it's leading me to this deeper truth. And this deeper truth is one, that people of God are imperfect, but two, this reminder that I have to always be driven by this call to love. But Augustine, too, is just ripping off of Jesus because there's that famous passage in Matthew when the teachers of the law come to Jesus and they ask him, what's the most important you know, commandment? And what they're saying is, what's the foundational dogma? What's the foundational doctrine? How do we go about interpreting all of these, what, 616 you know, laws and commands um, in the Hebrew Bible? And he says it's grounded by two things, love God you know, and love your neighbor. And we all know that part, but we kind of skip over that in, in piece, which I think is critical for biblical interpretation today, when he says all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And so what he's saying is that you know all the law and the prophets, that was scripture, that was the Bible before that there was a Bible. And so if Jesus is going to be formative for our faith, and as Christians, I think we can at least agree that Jesus should be formative for our faith. What he is saying, in my interpretation of what he is saying, is that how we go about interpreting the Bible um, from Genesis to Revelation has to be shaped by this call to love, which is what Augustine says. So the, Augustine is saying that we constantly have to arrive at this endpoint um, of love. And so what I hear Jesus and Origen and Augustine saying together is that we have to begin and we have to end with love. So that love is both our foundation. So it drives us to scripture. It drives us to serve our neighbor. But then love is our found, or is our finish line, keeps us in line and keeps us focused so that when we come to these problematic scriptures, like women should be silent in the church, slaves should be our masters, if your children is unruly, take them outside the camp and you know stone them to death. That we can say with the freedom that origin gives us that it's okay to admit that these are not good passages because these don't call us to love. And then look at that as a challenge to discover new ways to love and serve our neighbors. And so, you know, for me, it's been it's been personally just liberating, you know, and you know, to be able to not have to do the mental gymnastics that I used to do all the time of dealing with these sort of really problematic passages and just say, you know what, the people of God that wrote this book are just like you and me, and I get it wrong sometimes. And it's okay to admit that. And I think that there's something healthy and holy, you know, about admitting our our faults. I mean, I think repentance is 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 a very orthodox part of the Christian tradition. Why would we not bring repentance into um biblical interpretation, you know, as well. And so, you know, for me, admitting those things that I get wrong and that the people of God get wrong opens up new opportunities for me to love in ways and that I never thought possible because I was so bound by predetermined dogma and boundaries that the Holy Spirit 
is continually trying to blow up, you know, in my life. You know, things like, you know, sheets full of animals that I'm not supposed to eat because they're unholy, right? This is Peter who says, no, I can't do this, you know, because this is the law and the prophets and Holy Spirit is coming down and saying, I'm doing a new thing. And so I think when we can open up ourselves to really be inspired and spirited with the Holy Spirit, this freedom and this structure of love opens up new ways to bring life and freedom and hope and liberation into the world that aren't possible when we're bound to only caring if we're correct. Right. Yes. Yeah. Zach, you know, I'm thinking as you're speaking about how Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 makes a similar point um, rather than love is an ethic of interpretation, he actually makes the point in First Corinthians eight that love is the love is the epistemology of knowing, mm-hmm. um, and so that he's he's actually pushing back against some of the same things that you are, and that some people think they know a lot of things, but they don't know as they ought to know because they don't love, and they're not mm-hmm. loved by God, you know. And I think what your book is doing is helping us recenter: what does it mean to know something? What does it mean to trust something? from sort of this Cartesian enlightenment certitude rationality and not not um, not vanquishing that, but right. ordering that under the greater or more um, central ethic of love as an epistemological ethic, as a way of being in the world, which aligns a lot with why we started Gravity, um, to help people get clear um, about what love mm-hmm. is. You know, I, I was, that, that text you're yeah. mentioning about the Good Samaritan, right? Um, the, the the question that is asked is, who's my neighbor? And I think today mm-hmm. I hear more people asking, well, what is love really? You know, yeah. like is love just being nice and permissive right. and, uh, you know, uh, li- libertine, you know, or mm-hmm. does love, is love the most powerful thing in the universe? Does love have teeth to it? Is love, yeah. is love gritty and strong and rugged? And I think, mm-hmm. um, Maybe that's a whole different podcast, but I wonder if you have thoughts. Maybe as we wrap up, um, I think who's my neighbor? I think we've we're closer to understanding that. But how would you answer today if somebody were to say, "Yeah, but what's love?" How would you answer that? I think that's one of the greatest challenges, um, you know, and also my biggest frustration with the English language is that we have one word for love, you know, and that it's love, you know, and the Greek is, you know, there's multiple words um, and in other languages, you know, there's multiple words for love, you know, but we reduce it to just one. And so it becomes, you know, one word for romantic feelings, you know, one word, the same word for, you know, uh, friendly feelings, the same word for warm, fuzzy feelings. And so we, we think of love as just this sort of, um, warm, fuzzy feeling, right? And there's so much more to the biblical, you know, concept of love than just being nice, right? And Jesus's love compels him to do things that sometimes aren't actually very nice. You know, when he starts railing against the oppression of um, and marginalization of the religious leaders of his day, when he calls them children of hell, you know, and snakes and brood of vipers and all these other things, starts flipping over tables. You know, when he's doing these acts of, um, justice and and these prophetic moments of calling people to account those are moments that are driven by love you know love doesn't just like tolerate things you know love can be very intolerant 
Love is not tolerant of injustice. Love is not tolerant of oppression. Love is not tolerant of marginalization. You know, love Mm -hmm. can be scary sometimes because love pushes us into places and to do things that we, you know, don't feel always comfortable about, you know, but at the end of the day, love should be life giving. Right. And if, if we're not bringing forth life, whether that's through liberation or grace or community or, or whatever, then it's not loving. You know, we, we attach love to a lot of things, I think, in the Christian tradition that end up just being acts of gaslighting, right? Where, you know, oh, no, I'm loving you, you know, into being a better Christian. I'm loving you by doing this, that, or the other. And, you know, whether it's telling people they're going to hell or shaming them at, you know, church or, or whatever it is, we, we use it as a defense. But if it's not life-giving, it's not love, you know? And so, I think, you know, if, if we could really begin to understand love in these much more practical, earthy kinds of ways, um, then we can become a people of good news again, and that we can begin to see God at work in ways and in places and people that we never imagined um, before, and that we can begin to really understand the power of resurrection. You know, we it's instead of just being this neat miracle that happened 2000 years ago, we can begin to see how love is creeping forth in all the dark corners of the world to bring light and love in places that we oftentimes avoid because they're unholy, right? Because they're, they're, they're not, they're uncouth. They're not where good Christian people should go. But I think that love drives us to those places because love gives life. And those are the places that need life. Yeah. Yeah. The book, again, is God Breathed, What It Really Means for the Bible to Be Divinely Inspired. Zach, before we let you go, uh, what are you working on now, and where can people find you? Would you plug your pluggables real quick? Um, Working on right now is making sure that I have all of my kids' tuitions for gymnastics and field (laughs) trips, and um, that is... That is most of my play at the moment. I've got some a couple project ideas um, and that I'd like to um, find some time for. But in the meantime, if people want to find me, um, all my social media handles are the same. It's at Zach Hunt, but there's two A's in Zach because some jerk stole my name, you know, 15 years ago, and I tried to be clever, and it just became confusing. Um, but I've also got a Substack, um, and that's spelled the regular name. Z-A-C-K's just to make things additionally confusing. I'm bad at social media is is what I'm trying to say. Well, but Hang on, just to clarify, there's a church called Zach Hunt? A church? Yeah, did you say you some church? church stole your no, name. jerk. Jerk. Um, jerk. A jerk. I thought yeah. you said church too. I was like, that's, oh, yeah. no, that's, that's a be weird awesome. church. <laughs> um, you mean that'd be an awesome church? No. Um, yeah, no, church like... I tried to get the handle a million years ago yeah. and you know, somebody was just sitting on it on Twitter, um, not using it and then try to use it for my own like website. So it, my website is Zach hunt.net and I tried to buy.com and it was owned by a Zach hunt who doesn't even spell his name the same way and just redirected. He spelled Z A C H and it redirected to his like weightlifting company or something in Washington <laughs> that doesn't even exist anymore. And so I tried to buy it now and they want to sell it to me for like 1500 bucks. I'm like, no, it's just my name, guys. It's not really that valuable. But yeah, find me on the internet. I'm I'm around Instagram, Threads, Facebook. Yeah, great. Thanks for joining us today, Zach. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.
Ben, I'll be honest. I had more questions about barbecue. Yeah, I could tell. I, I, it was. Um, I thought it was interesting, you know, to, to kind of get that off, out of the way up front. But you know, listeners, you can't see Matt's face. Um, but we record these on a video call, and I can see Matt's face, and I could see your eyes growing wider, mm-hmm. and uh, I could see your wheels turning. I know you well enough to know when the wheels of your brain are turning and. It could have easily turned into a 45 minutes on, you know, the intricacies of barbecue. Yeah. I mean, I boast nothing uh, except for in the cross. But if I did boast in other things, I would boast in how much restraint I showed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will say that um, I was paying attention when he was talking yeah. about barbecue, which is right. a big thing for me. Yeah. yeah. You know, he had my undivided attention. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I looked up that file cabinet. Yeah. What? What? I was just no. going to say something that only some that some of us can only dream of. Yeah, I know. I know my attention <laughs> is an object of your dreams, Ben. I know this. Anyway. You've you've confessed this mm-hmm. to me before, and I know mm-hmm. we're we're working through it. Yeah, both yeah. of us. We both contribute to the uh, moral depravity of that dream. <laughs> both sides. <laughs> anyway. Um, I looked up his uh, KBQ and it's it's a pricey instrument. So I, yeah. yeah, you probably can't get it for me for my birthday. But I what, will. You're saying you could get it for my birthday? No. Ben, is that you? Uh, do you really want to learn how to smoke barbecue? You know, I think I would. You know, I'm into cooking. You are. So it's not, it's not, you know, I mean, barbecue's cooking. Um, so I'm into, you know, the wider category. I cook for my family. I love eating barbecue. So I think I, I think I'd be into it. I think yeah. I just need to, you know, I don't know. You need the opportunity. You need, you need the you need instruments the and the opportunity. The instruments and the opportunity. Like cooking, for example, I have everything I need, right? I got pans. Yep. I got pots. Yep. Smoking. Like, oh, I mean, the other thing I would love to get into is actually, I'd love to get a record player and I'd love to get into <laughs> capital L listening to music. Now I do, I love music and I listen all the time to music, but if you're, I mean, I'm like most people now, I listen to music while I'm doing something else. I'm cleaning yep. the house or I'm driving yep. in my car or I'm, you know, but I think it would be an interesting discipline to get into. I'm just going to put on this record. I'm going to sit in this room yeah, you've said and I'm going to listen before. to this song. That's it. All I'm doing is listening. Yeah. I think that's, that's, there's something, but that requires, you know, an L, at least a few hundred dollars, right? To get a decent system yeah. that could play records, you know, well, that kind of thing. First world probs. I, uh, Truly. other, other than the barbecue, I did enjoy uh-huh. speaking with Zach. I appreciate I the, too. um, I did too. obviously, uh, I was an undergrad history major and I went to theology school. And so the, the way he handles history and how he brings history to bear on, why we are where we are is uh, I love the cut of that jib. So yeah, yeah, me too. I I think you know one of the other things that um, I was storing up, uh, ready to say that I that I didn't say um, because the moment moved on and mm-hmm. it felt like the interview would be better served. I'm patting myself on the back just a little <laughs> bit here as well. Um, but anyway, I I did want to say this that um, you know. Zach has said what others have said in this series about troubling Bible passages, you know, slaves obey your masters or yeah. God commanding genocide or whatever. Yeah. Um, and he, he said something similar that I just want to reiterate for our listeners, because I think it sometimes feels to, to uh, 
people like our listeners, listeners, can we talk directly? I'll just talk to you. I know that some of you feel like the most important question when you come to a, a troubling Bible passage is how do I interpret this if I don't just interpret it the way that I used to, which is to say that this is good or somehow that this is, that this, this is fine. Um, and I, I, I think w- one of the points of clarity that came through in what Zach was sharing was that that's actually not the most important question. It's an interesting question. And I think it's something that eventually we need to wrestle with if we're going to say that the Bible is divinely inspired and is the word of God, so to speak. Um, but I think the first question or the first thing that you need to feel that you can do is, is to just unequivocally say that it is wrong. At least the way that you've interpreted it. You know what I mean? Like slaves obey your masters. Like, is that saying slavery is good? Well, no, it's not right. Is slavery good because of this? No, it's not. And it's like the first, the first move is for you to not feel like you have to gaslight your own conscience but to allow the text to disturb you. The first move is to just welcome that disturbance as, 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 a, as a place of meeting with God. It's holy ground. Go ahead and pay attention to the disturbance and don't feel like you have to figure out what it means before you can be troubled by it. Yeah. Yeah. That might be a good word. Send it on. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, I hope, Hope listeners are finding this helpful. I'm finding this series helpful. I really yeah. enjoy talking with all these people that we get to talk to. Yeah. Uh, one final thing, Ben. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have I ever told you about my dream job? Um, no, I haven't. Well, yeah. I don't think so. My dream job is cleaning mirrors. Oh, is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems like a weird dream job. I mean, you I could, could... You could just do that. I, Your wife would appreciate it. Well, maybe. I could just really see myself doing that. It's good. It's good. All right. We don't have Christy here to groan audibly. (laughs) So just listener know that I'm groaning inwardly Hmm. with sighs too deep for words. Which really, you don't need me to tell dad joke for that to happen. You're sort of, you're sort of groaning and sighing all the time, Ben. Mm, Yeah. I I don't know what that says about me. I'm just generally maybe a little bit of a grumpy guy. Well, how about we hit stop on this podcast and then I can, uh, you can just get it all out and then I'll yeah, send you, right. I'll send you an invoice. All right. Sounds good. All right. Listener, see you next week. See everybody. Peace. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Joining our Gravity community is free. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sternke edits and mixes the podcast, and you can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start record button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time.